Welcome to the Power of Podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. In our last episode, we explored how the widespread use of gender transformative language has masked shamefully slow progress in tackling the structural and systemic factors that perpetuate gender inequalities in global health, with gender transformation often being seen as something that happens outside of health systems. In this episode, we focus specifically on health systems and what health system transformation for gender equality looks like. We start off by asking, how do gender power inequalities manifest in health systems? I think we are all aware that globally women consisted of 70% of the health workforce and social care, but only 25% of women hold senior roles. And this is clearly evident from global health. Well, when we look at Cambodia, women tend to concentrate in the lower cadres of the medical professions. For example, less number of women in nurse, while 100% of women in midwife, and there are less number of medical doctor and specialty doctor who are women. So I think current health system is actually delivered by women, but led by men, which means that less women taking leadership position and involved in or contribute to the decision-making process. That is Shrey Tujvong, the policy manager of Enhancing Quality of Healthcare Activity Project in Cambodia. Shrey Tuch is also a health systems and public health researcher and former team leader of the S-Rebuild project in Cambodia. Let's hear more of what Shreytuch has to say on the issue of women's representation and leadership across health systems. I think the health system building block, which is the guiding principle of the health system improvement, are not designed to be gender sensitive or gender transformative. Because mostly the majority of people who sit in and design the system building block are men. So I'll give you an example how it impacts on the health system. For example, in the health service delivery, in some country and culture, women prefer to have more like female doctor or a female health worker to provide care for them. But if only women concentrates in the lower level of medical profession, the health need of other women who need specialized female doctor would not be fulfilled for their health need. Another clear cut is that the health information system, uh, especially in the uh, low middle income country like Cambodia, perhaps is designed not to reflect the gender uh, dimension there. For example, if we want to use the evidence to prove there is a gender gap in major aspects of the accessibility and utilization of healthcare by women, but we are constrained with lack of uh, data or gender data to show the evidence to policymaker that there is a constraint of proving that certain Utilization by a certain group of women is not fulfilled. 
Last but not least, I think uh, especially it related to the current COVID situation, you see the design of medical supply and equipment mostly targeting or using main body. Uh, recently, I also found that there's a lot of uh, people stood up to do advo- advocacy on design the uh, PPE that fit the woman body. So this is a three clear example that can show us how gender actually affects the health system and the health outcome of people in the country. Thanks, Shrey Tuch. Joining us in the conversation are Jean-Paul Dossou and Lucy Gilson. Jean-Paul is a medical doctor and a public health scientist from Benin. He's currently leading the Centre de Recherche en Reproduction Humaine et en Démographie, CERUD, which is an active partner with WHO and UNFPA on various sexual and reproductive health research and intervention issues. Lucy is a health policy and systems researcher based in Cape Town, South Africa. With a development studies background, Lucy's research work has considered the institutions of health systems that shape how decisions are made on an everyday basis paying particular attention to frontline health system actors, healthcare users, providers, and local managers. Jean-Paul and Lucy, what are examples you would give of how gender power inequalities manifest in health systems? User fees are uh, like a backbone of the health financing in many countries, including in my country. And particularly for women who are um, key users of health services, as a woman, you have to pay to deliver. That money can be sometimes very important, sometimes even catastrophic. What it created, we all know the very nature of how it can deny access to care, how this can lead to poor quality care, how this can lead to maternal death. And we all understand the particular nature of uh, gender inequality. The dimension I want to highlight here is the symbolic violence it constitutes and how it creates a structural barrier to women's emancipation. And at the end of the pregnancy, she's particularly vulnerable. Vulnerable financially, vulnerable in her society in, in, because he fully, she has fully to rely on her family to have access to pay for anything or for many aspects of access care. And in hospitals particularly, where she has to pay for everything, including syringes and all consumables to access care, she may just lack capacity to pay $1 for one particular consumable and this can lead to delay, extreme delays of care she can die because of that. So when you see in your society that women, your sister, your mother, or your wife, or someone, a woman can die just because of one dollar, and this happened consistently and over time, as a woman, you can start questioning the value the society gives to your life. A symbolic violence for that structurally affects how women perceive themselves, how the society perceives women. 
and how this influenced many things in the society. And I'm raising this example because the health system can work on such kind of thing. This kind of structural, structural element can be addressed. Thank you so much, Jean-Paul, for again, also very powerful examples. Yeah, there's so much to begin discussing already, but Lucy, please, I'd very much like to hear from you as well in terms of a few examples that you can give of how gender inequalities manifest within the health system. I want to pick up on an issue that Shretush raised, and uh, I think that in some ways underlies some of the things that Jean-Paul spoke about, the issues that Jean-Paul spoke about. And it is about the voices in the room that make decisions. And in every health system, the decision-making processes structure then the types of service delivery, the types of financing mechanisms, the approaches to human resource development that are implemented. So the voices in the room speaks to the issues of governance and leadership. And in most countries around the world, possibly all, not only in the health system, but in society or in other forms of uh, societal governance um, processes and structures, male voices dominate. In a health system, medical voices dominate. And the ways then that the decisions are made that do not take account of the particular needs of women, the particular experiences of women, is critical to the, the way the health system is structured and runs. And Shetush already spoke around uh, issues to do with leadership and who the leaders in systems are. And I think it's the challenge that we face is how to ensure that the people involved in decision-making bring with them uh, an awareness and appreciation of multiple experiences and in relation to gender, of course, experiences around gender and the way gender influences health-seeking behaviour, influences the use of services, influences the way services are provided, influences what services are or how services are structured. So some of the critical challenges are the very imbalances in uh, the power around decision-making that then lead to the sorts of uh, experiences that both Shretush and uh, Jean-Paul have spoken about. Thanks so much, Lucy. Linked to this initial question in terms of, you know, examples where these inequalities manifest and how they manifest within the health system, it would be great if you could give some examples of shifts or changes that have happened within the health system which you think have been steps on the right path towards gender equality and addressing some of these inequalities within the broader health system. Perhaps unpack, if you can, why it happened, how it happened, and talk through some of those examples that you've witnessed. I think COVID-19 is actually a threat for everyone, for the health system and for other countries around the world. But it's also provided opportunity to women in Cambodia, especially the women leader in the health system. I think it's very crucial to have uh, the power of women in the leadership level and also support and integrate a women health workforce in every aspect of the health system and empower those female health workers to support the current crisis in order to make the system more responsible, more responsive to the need of uh, people. In the case of Cambodia, 
just to share with you how women could show their visibility or become a, a leader under this kind of COVID crisis. I think two important aspects that I could observe. First is about the supporting environment. For example, in Cambodia, we have the uh, male leader, the PM, and uh, mostly the other uh, leader who are male try to support women to involve women in this leadership position. So this is a critical supporting environment without their support. Even how much women is competent, how much women is good, how much is a woman is capable in leading, but they would not have the opportunity to raise the case, to show their voice, to show their commitment and performance. Uh, second aspect that I think is really important is that they have the supportive uh, family, perhaps like mostly the uh, supportive family and partner support, which is the uh, crucial foundation for every woman to have more time to engage in leadership and decision-making role in the health system. Thanks so much, Shreytuch. John Paul, would you like to give your thoughts in terms of some examples where you have seen positive steps towards addressing some of these inequalities within health systems? I see that it is possible through digital devices and the profound transformations that uh, digitalization is uh, having in the life of everyone to give means to women, to empower women to take their day-by-day decisions with better information and with better capacities in the way to, to improve their lives. I'm saying that because we may think that even though national level, national bodies and states in various parts of the world still hold a lot of influences on what is happening in those countries, in uh, their areas of influence, digital devices are also now influencing a lot what people are doing every day and the decision they make every day. These have also two uh, uh, pros and cons, because if we fail to understand who control those, the information that are shared on those devices, then we are also having other layers of uh, sources of inequality that are uh, influencing what's happening mainly in low and middle income countries and eventually also in other parts of the world. I will conclude here and say decision-making can be influences, could be influenced on a day-by-day basis if digital transformation of our societies can be oriented more smartly to empower women and also other vulnerable groups of the society everywhere, not only in the South, but also in the global north. Thanks, Jean-Paul, for picking up on the, if you like, the everyday decision-making of people in their own lives and how important that is as well. I guess the example of shifts on the path towards gender equality that I wanted to give was shifts in the profile of leaders. But I see leaders not only as the most visible senior decision makers within health systems. I see leaders as people across the system and not only as health professionals, but also as Jean-Paul has just spoken about, people in their everyday lives. I think leadership is a process of decision making that engages and takes account of others. Having 
put that to one side. Uh, my example is to do with the growing profile of women leaders within the health sector. And that's both globally and regionally in Africa, for example, the head of the WHO Afro region, the current director is a woman leader. And it's fantastic to see women in those sorts of leadership positions in South Africa, where I work. We've seen some women leaders, both as ministers of health in the past, but also in other positions uh, within the country. Not as many as I would like to see, but some. But I think the systemic change towards greater numbers of women leaders is also a change that opens up leadership positions beyond the medical profession, because in many countries, the medical profession remains dominated by men. So as positions of leadership are opened up to those with nursing backgrounds or occupational therapy backgrounds or other types of health professional backgrounds and backgrounds that are not exclusively health professions, then I think we are seeing an opening up of women leaders in places that are important, not just at the top of the system, in the middle of the system, spread across the system. And I think that the importance of that transformation in a health system is firstly the demonstrated role models that they provide of the possibility of not only a gender equality, but also an equality of perspectives being brought to the table. And I think that is also important to consider. I also wanted to pick up on Shretush's point about within the COVID era, the opening up of space for women leaders. And I think that has, to some extent, been evident in the world that I'm a part of as well, where, for example, in the province in South Africa, where I live, the person in charge of supporting the public sector rollout of the vaccination program is a woman leader. And fantastic to see that. She is part of a team that is comprised of different professionals as well as of both men and women. But bringing her voice to the table and seeing her voice at the table is an important demonstration of moving towards gender equality. Thank you all so much. I guess if I can be a little bit provocative, and I think one of the threads that has run through all three of your comments is this importance of widening perspectives that are included in decision-making within health systems. What are your thoughts, actually, in terms of questioning the very nature of decision-making and the structures and processes in terms of how decisions are made? Apart from just widening the perspectives and voices included in the room, should we be questioning the very nature of decision-making? I don't know if any of you have any thoughts or reactions to that. I have, if I may. I think you're absolutely right. I think that begs the question of what structures of decision-making are we talking about? So most public sectors are very hierarchical. Decision-making is centralised within them. And in the COVID era, that has perhaps been emphasised in many ways because there has been the need for strong central leadership and centralised decisions around various aspects of the response, for example, with respect to procurement. That's often a centralised decision-making process. But I think what I've also seen in the months of COVID is a opening up of spaces at different parts of the system to 
not only bring perspectives into decision making, but as it were, a decentralization of decision making so that there is some power being handed over within the system so that local needs can be better met. Now, that's perhaps happening at a time of crisis. And so the question is, is that will that be sustained over time? And that remains to be seen. But I think more broadly, if we're talking about structures of decision making, then we have to be talking about what greater degrees of decentralization of power in decision making are needed to then ensure that the space of decision making is not limited to a few, but opened to more and within that more to women as well as men. Thanks, Lucy, for giving us a very critical perspective on decision-making and how structure shape the decision-making in traditional way and how it opened up under the COVID era. Yeah, I also feel it quite similar to your perspective. We are in hard time, but I see it the window of opportunity to promote and show more women or empower women in more leadership role. But I doubt whether, like, how do we maintain the involvement of women in the system after perhaps like COVID-19 or in power crisis, whether women will be maintained their position, will be maintained their performance, their involvement in actively in uh, supporting the system to perhaps to respond to the need of local people. Yeah. About this question of decision-making, this can be transformed and also be transformative. I support really the the, the point of Lucy on uh, the one result so on by straight touch on how we have seen in new leadership, like the women holding more places. For instance, I work with the Putti that is a woman. I have worked under a strong women leadership here at Sirut. And I can also understand how the particular role of women in a leadership for everyday generation for decision-making brings also another strong capacity of change. And I will conclude here and say women leadership is really holds a strong transformative power. We have to push that a little bit further by supporting also the role of women in research, in evidence for research generation and use because in the global landscape today evidence seems to be something very prominent to ground decision making if women can if when women are playing a leadership role in decision in a evidence generation and use influencing the way the research agenda is framed from the very nature of the question asked up to the how uh, findings are interpreted and prepared for decision making can have a very strong transformative role. There's really so much we can get into and continue discussing, and I feel bad sort of pulling us back. But if I can take a moment and sort of retract slightly, there are several movements focusing on health systems transformation, particularly work around decolonization, gender equity, politics of evidence translation, I would love to hear from each of you your views on how we can better build bridges across these different agendas to achieve the common goal and make sure, well, respective agendas are not sidelined one for the other, for example. And actually, we're working more collectively to transform health systems for equality. I can start here, if you allow me. 
I want here to refer to a powerful statement, a powerful lecture that uh, my colleague Shege Abibola, that you probably all know, gave recently, and he was referring to a concept like love. Love. Love, justice, and global health. It resonated a lot in me personally. I was asking, what if all what we are struggling for can just be summarized by one single word like this one, love? Why it is very hard to conceptualize, hard to measure, how to design intervention for love, to improve loving capacities of people. This is a kind of concept that is not like researched, we may need some philosophical reflections on how to conceptualize this and how to foil this in the narrative of various work we are doing in global health and eventually even apply that to, to decoloniality and in the South and North relationship, even in the South South relationship and even in one country where the, the one making the decision is not like really guided by Love, like by these positive feelings of really trying to do its best for the good of the one he's taking the decision for, then we are like missing a strong part. There is like a whole world that we are missing in the conversation, in the global conversation. So gender inequality, decoloniality, all those concepts are like consequences of something that is making much more granular that is just like a lack of of love or a lack of of something that is more inside each of us that is guiding what we are doing i will conclude here and say that i strongly believe that there is a whole world of of feelings of the soft, I mean, maybe just say the soft part of health systems require much more attention. And there are so many other concepts, poorly conceptualized currently in the global health or in health system research and practice that deserve more attention. And that can have a strongly transformative role in health system that will affect the coloniality, affect also gender equality and other structural challenges that uh, health systems are facing nowadays. I very appreciate uh, Jean-Paul's ideas and agree that there are commonalities. I think that the idea of love, as Jean-Paul has spoken about, provides a way of connecting different strands of discussion and thought towards a sort of common goal, and that I would link the sort of rebalancing of power dynamics to allow the achievement of common goals. And so I think they are perhaps ideas that run in parallel with each other. I think that in thinking, well, will one movement, as it were, win out over other movements, it sort of implies there's a zero-sum game there. And yet I think we have to focus on the goals that we are seeking, what we can learn from each other, and see them as multiplying opportunity rather than competing with each other. There is so much to learn about how to bring about new societies, and that is what we all want. The goal we are seeking is so important. We need to not just bridge, but work together. But the sort of heart of being able to work together is, I think, the idea that we have to redress current power balances and we have to find new ways of thinking about the world that we want. 
Thanks, Lucy. And Shreytuj? I just wish to echo the idea from Lucy, and this is a very, very great idea. In fact, I do believe that there's a lot of intervention, a lot of global movements around gender transformative or empower women or promoting gender in global health. But I still think that gender transformative health system is a long way, a long journey to go. So rather than we say that which intervention is better than another, I think it's better to study from each other and also trying to complement the intervention or complement the movement from one another rather than compete each other. I really appreciate this idea and I think it's a long way to go. From my experience in research in women in leadership in Cambodia, I believe that building the role model of women leader, you have to have uh, capacity building confidence of the younger generation of women who engage in the health system or in health sector in the country so that they will be more competent, more confident, yeah, and willing to take the role to be the future leader of the health system or health sector in the country. What support decision-making at all levels of the society, not only national, like big level, national level decision-making, but also empowering people in the day-by-day decision-making to seek better positive feelings and positive experience in their lives can have very strong transformative influences in the society in general and as well in the health systems. And we are at the moment in history where all those kind of conversations start to have special meanings. So it is a good momentum to push this conversation forward, to engage a larger number of people in this conversation and not be shy about using concepts like love, like feelings, like emotions, and start to ask how those things, what those kind of things can mean for us every day. It's very strong transformative power. If we start asking at all stages of uh, an intervention design or a policy design, how this policy is expected to work on various groups of the society, including women and other vulnerable groups in the society, how this intervention will change their lives in them apparently and also in uh, unexpected or uh, ways that are not apparently straightforward. If we start asking those kind of questions and uh, we get very serious about them, then I think we can have smarter policies and also better gender-sensitive policies for better health systems and for a better world. I suppose I, I think it's really important that we recognise the, the particular situation we're in in the world now. And I think that the COVID crisis has brought immense suffering and multiple burdens to communities and to women across the world but it is also a time of change. So in order to transform any system for gender equality, we have to recognise a moment of opportunity. And each of us, wherever we're located, in relation to 
the health system. We have to really grab that moment to create spaces to do things differently, to structure decision-making differently, to establish new spaces of leadership, to bring different voices to the table now, because what we do now will be the platform for what happens moving forward and in the future. And we cannot wait. We must really take hold of this moment wherever we are, researchers, community leaders, health professionals, ministers of health, the WHO officers, we must all take hold of this moment to do things differently towards the goals that we want to establish for the future. And if we are to come out of the COVID era with opportunities for new futures, we each have a responsibility to grasp this moment to make a difference. That's a very powerful note to end on, with so much to take away and reflect from this fantastic conversation with Jean-Paul Shreytouch and Lucy. In the next episode, we will hear from those evaluating health programs on how gender-transformative language is used and its role in ensuring gender-related barriers and needs are actually addressed in health programs. In the meantime, you can visit our website, at www.iigh.unu.edu or the Gender and Health Hub website, which is www.genderhealthhub.org or via Twitter at unu underscore iigh or our Gender and Health Hub Twitter account, which is at Gender Health Hub. You can also send us your feedback and suggestions via email at iigh-info at unu.edu. Thanks so much for listening and until next time. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only. Mm-hmm.